Yes, I'm Dutch. Dyslexia, audio transmission. Hello and welcome to Dis and That, the podcast from the Dyslexia Association of Ireland. Our guest on this episode is Richard Hogan. Richard is an ambassador of Dyslexia Ireland and he is a psychotherapist and published author. Richard will talk about his own experience of being dyslexic and also his role uh, professionally as both a teacher and a psychotherapist in working in this area. It's a really interesting chat that we have. We talk about the power of words and language uh, that we use around dyslexia, both positive and negative. Uh, Richard shares his views about how well we are properly including children with dyslexia, both in schools and in society. And we also have lots of lovely quotes from Richard, and he concludes by talking about the importance of using humour in this in this area. So, hope you enjoy the episode. And uh, the next voice you hear will be Eva. Welcome everybody uh, to this episode of Dis and Dash. Um, today we are joined by Dyslexia Association of Ireland's uh, Ambassador Richard Hogan. Um, and Richard, I'm going to pass the mic over um, and you might just tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Aoife. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, this little chinwag, as you said. Um, so my name is Richard Hogan, and I'm a clinical director of Therapy Institute. Um, I started off my career, I suppose. Um, I suppose uh, there's a big difference between who you are and what you do, but it's a, it's a good question. And we always lean back to what we do rather than who we are. And I suppose who I am is I'm a 46-year-old father of three wonderful girls and, you know, married and living in in uh, Dublin and um, I, I started off my career as a school teacher and I came out of education say formative education in the mid 90s I went through primary school education in the 80s in Ireland and I, I had a, I had an experience myself at, you know finding spellings and, and maths and Irish very problematic uh, I was undiagnosed uh, with dyslexia until about fifth class so I'd gone through the you know a fair bit of the old educational system for you know not being di- diagnosed just feeling I was stupid and my brother seemed to work you know move with such ease and my family was quite academic my father was a journalist for the Irish Times and so things were quite academic in the family and I felt certainly that uh, I kind of knew I was academic in one way but then I knew there was also a glaring aperture between what I was saying and what I was writing you know and, and so I tried to hide that for years and then when I went into education I could see it myself in the school around me and I, could, I was thinking you know before I ever heard of like neural di- neurodiversity or anything I was thinking god you know the majority of people actually this thing doesn't suit the majority of people the way we do it the majority of people actually you know it's a real minority that this rote learning this kind of system that we have suits and I, I, that was one of the most striking kind of things I, I learned myself uh, you know as a teacher and then I, I'd work with students who thought of themselves as stupid and I never revealed myself in those conversations as being dyslexic myself. I could see it in them and I'd help them with it. And I'd help them out of the, that in, in inner critic. But I never revealed because I was also, you know, quite closed myself about it because I, I thought it was a terrible thing. And it was a terrible secret I, I had to hold until I went back and I, start, I, I retrained as a, a family systemic psychotherapist. And I started becoming a lot more comfortable with who I am and, you know, and what I'm about and, you know, what, what the, you know, what's driving me and what my motives are and, you know, why I'm motivated to help teenagers and, you know, help people in general. 
Um, I was helping that earlier child that felt wasn't helped, I suppose. And that's kind of like, you know, what's really informed who I am. You know, yes, that question, who am I? That's really informed who I am. And um, and so, yeah. And then just, yeah, that's it. And, and I kind of started to, to to work clinically then as a psychotherapist. And I, and I worked with families and I worked with teenagers and I wrote the book Parenting the Screenager about, you know, how to help parents with tech tech savvy kids because I could see it in my clinic again another issue huge problems and then I I was also seeing before 2015 you know huge problems with sexuality and when thankfully when the referendum happened I was this is one of the most seminal moments in our in our history and of course then in, in the last couple of weeks we saw these terrible um cases you know where people are murdered and a, a young beautiful young man is attacked in Dublin because of his who he chooses to love and we kind of take a step backwards and we're, we're reminded maybe we're not as diverse and progressive as a society that we think we are. And so that's the, uh, that's always motivating me, you know, to work, when working with adolescents and working with people is the idea of inclusion. And so when I did get into uh, systemic psychotherapy, I saw the theory and I thought every teacher has to be trained in this. You know, every teacher should know this because it's all about inclusion. It's all about hearing each other. I mean, what, what do we want to do? We want to be witnessed and heard. And so I wrote a paper called Systemic Practices in Education, and I sent it off to the universities. And Trinity came back to me within a day saying, we love what, you, we love what you're written there. Would you come in and do a PhD? And I was just kind of coming out of my master's. And I was thinking, oh, God, the last thing I want now is six years of further education. <laughs> I think I'm all educated after 12 years. I think I'm educated enough. But I, I did. I went back and I went into it and I, and, I, and, I, and I did the PhD with Trinity. And out of that, then I went to America on a Fulbright scholarship because I, I, my whole PhD is about inclusion. How do we how do we actually go and include people? Because that's what Dyslexia Ireland is about. You know, that's what the association is about. How do we go about including people who maybe learn a different way? Because the the idea that we all learn the same way is one of the biggest, you know, it's like what, um, you know, Immanuel Kant, the frame, famous German philosopher says, you know, if the premise is wrong, the conclusions are always going to be wrong. The premise that we all learn the same way, all our conclusions that come out of that are going to be wrong. And so that, that's the kind of work that I'm trying to, trying to do is to, trying to look at how do we actually include people. And it's very interesting, my PhD Sorry, no, I know I've given a long response to this, but it's very interesting. My PhD, you know, I'm carrying out research on it and I'm interviewing young training teachers and I was doing it in America as well. And one of the, I suppose, the things that I found quite striking is people kind of generally think they don't hold a prejudice. People generally feel that they don't hold prejudices. And um, as I get into the interviews, you know, they, they, I can see them stopping and going, oh, God, is that a prejudice? You know, they're like, well, we all have prejudice. You cannot be sitting here as an adult and not have prejudice because we all came through really complicated systems and we've all heard really heavy narratives over the course of our lives. And so that's going to filter into our inner out bias and how we inform and how we kind of talk to kids in the class that look like us, act like us and kids that don't look like us and kids that don't act like us and kids that we've heard, held ideas about. And so that's what I noticed in teaching is that there was this idea of collective indifference, you know. If you don't bother me, I won't bother you. So just sit there. And I definitely was that child too, because I was difficult enough in school. And so teachers got into that dynamic with me. Just sit there quietly, Richard, and please don't disrupt the class. And I won't ask you anything. So we won't have a difficult relationship. And it's one of the most profoundly um, exclusive experiences you can go through. I mean, you can sit there and you can feel, oh, well, that's good. But really, you know, you know, fundamentally, this is a terrible experience for me. And it just becomes pervasive in your life. You start talking really negatively to yourself. And that's, I suppose, that's all, all of that is answering the question who I am. I suppose that's all driving into what's informing my um, desire for inclusion and talking about dyslexia. And the more we talk about it, the more we, you know, destigmatize it, the more 
you know, it's normal. And I can see it in schools. It's great. Now, I, I lecture in university and work in schools still. And it's great to see that the stigma is taken out of it. My own daughters have dyslexia as well. And the stigma in the house is kind of gone, but it wasn't there when I, when I was growing up. It certainly was a huge stigma. Mm. That's really interesting, Richard. Could I, you talked about that collective indifference where it was almost mm. a, a sort of paralysis going on. But you've talked in the past about a teacher who reached out to you and yeah. said, spoke to you, spotted you. Could you say yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks, Don. Yeah, I was in fifth class, so I had navigated the whole way through school. And uh, my parents went down and, and I said, like, you know, he's not reading as fast as the other kids, you know, the other son, her son, the other children in the house. And the parent, the kids, the teacher said, no, he's fine. He's grand, he's grand, 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 grand. And I knew I wasn't grand, but I was, you know, <laughs> I was hiding it. And I was very fluent speaking, you know, and, and I could talk about any topic. And that was a great way to deflect it. But I knew there was some issue there. I knew my spellings were really bad. And I used to actually kind of try to cheat in the exams. I'd, I'd get the, the spellings and I'd write them out the evening before. And I was kind of clever, kind of tricky in some way. I'd change my pen in the evening, you know, and so that there'd be two different inks down on the thing. And then during the exam, I'd ask for someone in the class, do you have a red pen? Because my black pen's after going. So I had evidence that I had changed my pen, you know, so the teacher would think, oh, God, yeah, well, he did change his pen. I mean, it was very... <laughs> It was quite sophisticated cheating for like, you know, a six-year-old. Yeah. And um, and I was just trying to hide and teachers. So teachers going to go, Richard got 10 out of 10. But, you know, and it would, it would completely confuse them. I suppose I was confusing them until I, until I arrived into fifth class. And I had this wonderful teacher who, as it turns out, had a dyslexic brother. Okay. And this would be like 1980, 1986, right? Around there, 1985, 1986. So, you know, inclusion and all that kind of stuff. And student well-being wouldn't have been paramount in the class. It wouldn't have really been a huge, it was beginning to happen, but it wasn't. But this teacher, as I saw her, she was ancient, right? You know, because I was like eight or nine, but she was only 21, right? So she was, and that was one of the most striking things about her conversation recently when she wrote to me. Um, you know, I, I was like, wow, she's only 60 something. So she must have been, I was going back in my head going, well, I thought she was ancient, but actually she was only, she was, she was a young teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, I was sitting in an exam one day and I hadn't prepared for the, obviously I hadn't prepared to, you know, it was a spot exam, whatever. So I was caught out here and she saw me sitting there and she said, and I kind of had this memory as well. She saw me sitting there with tears in my eyes and she came over to me and she said, you know, what's going on, Richard? And I told her, look, I'm just a bit stupid. That's all. And she said, come out, come outside. And, and we went outside and she said to me, um, you're not stupid. Actually, you're very bright. And she said, she didn't say, but this was like one of the first times I've ever, you're very bright and you might have a little bit of dyslexia in there. And maybe we might have a look at that and maybe think about getting that tested. And it was the most significant, I get goosebumps, as I mentioned, because it was like one, it was the first time someone saw me outside the family, you know, someone really, you know, penetrated your soul there. They saw into you and they saw that you were struggling. And they said, look, you know, while you're struggling doesn't mean you're stupid. It actually has, there's something here that we can have a look at. And, mm-hmm. and it really changed my relationship with myself, you know, because that was the first moment I thought, God, you know, maybe I'm not stupid. Maybe there's not some terrible secret here because that's how you feel. And when, I've, when I often heard um, students over the years would often come up to me and tell me about their sexuality and tell me, you know, Richard, I'm gay, whatever. It was a profound moment for them. I felt like that was kind of like that moment for me. And I, over the years, when students kind of talked to me and said, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm dyslexic, I felt it was like that moment of coming out almost, you know, where they felt this is who I am and I'm accepting it. And that was that kind of moment, Don, where someone kind of reached in and saw in me and actually kind of thought there's something good in there. And she was profound, Bridget O'Grady. And it was, it was incredible because when, when I wrote that article, I think it might have been about two, nearly two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was, was it last year? It was, you know, recent enough, I suppose, during, during lockdown. 
I really thought about that. Well, do I want to put this out there? You know, do I want to say I'm dyslexic because I write for the Irish Examiner? You know, <laughs> I'm a journalist for the Examiner and uh, I teach English. Mm-hmm. And do I want to say that I'm dyslexic? You know, could this, will, will students not kind of, you know, will they maybe have doubts? And that's all my inner critic kind of, you know, speaking to me there. And I said, no, you know, what I want to do is blow the stigma of this thing because I've got a bit of a platform. You know, I do, you know, I talk on TV and all that kind of stuff about mental health. And how can I do that if I'm not going to be genuine, authentic myself? You know, and how can you talk about being you know, true to yourself. So I, I wrote the article and the next day I was sitting in my clinic in between uh, clients and I got this email from Bridget O'Grady because I mentioned her in the article okay. and I got this email from her and I, I, I was, I, I went, right, this is the power of words. I was right back inside the skin of that like eight year old boy. I was bawling my eyes out in the clinic crying there. You know, I, I was just so upset because she's her first line says her first line. I'll always remember it. And I wrote, I'm writing a book again at the moment about the family. And I have this line included. And she said to me, um, uh, she said, hi Richard I remember you well you were a beautiful little boy and that just got me in the old rag and bone shop of the heart because I didn't think that that's what really got when I analyzed it I didn't think that about myself as a kid I didn't think I was a beautiful little boy I thought I was you know uh, a kid with a big secret that I had to hide and that I was stupid and that I was a disappointment and a letdown to my parents who were quite academic and intellectual and my brothers who just flew through school my, my brother two years ahead of me is you know just really good at, acad- at academia and all that kind of stuff and so that was hard coming into that but it was Bridget who actually saw it and changed I think changed the, my trajectory for sure the, yeah. the conversation in my head about myself yeah and I think that's I suppose we try to get that across in our 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 teacher training um our training for parents and guardians in terms of the way we speak about ourselves mm. and the language and that's it, it's so clear Richard that that's so embedded within your yeah. own work um and even going back to that point um, in a recent webinar, and you're referring to the, the article April, I think, yeah. 2021, just to have the, the, Thanks, the correct Eva, yeah. no bothers <laughs> fact-checking, um, but we'll have maybe those linked in the show notes for anybody listening as well, because, again, brilliant insights, and you have um, a bit more detail there about that teacher and mm. the impact, like you said, a young teacher, but really met you from where you're at. Yeah, R- Richard, would you be able to tell us a little bit about um, I suppose within um, your recent conversations, you've talked about dyslexia as being a voice or, you know, that that mm. aspect that it comes back to you at moments mm. of stress or moments yeah, of absolutely. You know, doubt. But yeah. what what for you is, you know, for people listening, what for you means that dyslexia is a voice or how does that feel? For, yeah, for it's de- as I see it anyway, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, this is absolute, but this is how I see it. It's mm. a voice. It's like an inner critic. It's it's a voice that says, don't do that. You know, don't spell that. You know, they'll know you're stupid. That voice in there that says, don't. don't. And it comes in those moments for me anyway. It comes when I'm really tired. Um, it really comes back when I'm really tired. And sometimes I might be standing in a lecture, you know, and all of a sudden I'm going to spell and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I, I can hear it pop up, you know, you're going, you're going to get this wrong because you're so tired. And that's the voice there a little bit as well. And so what was, what was interesting for me is that I could spell complicated words, but I could find very simple words quite problematic. And memory might, you know, sometimes, I, I, you know, especially pronouncing people's names in class, I don't, I'd say Irish names would, would pro- prove very difficult. And I'd find it very hard to remember, how did I pronounce it yesterday when I got it right? You know, that, that kind of thing. And so um, how I know it's a voice for me is that, it spoke to me so early on and what I often do my work, if it's interesting is I, I externalize it. I pull out the I pull out the voice and I interview the voice 
And so I showed that I saw that I showed the child or the, you know, the adult even that it, it is a voice, that it is a separate identity from who you are and it's corrupted and it's corrupting you. And it's kind of like tainting and pervasively kind of, you know, saying negative things in your life and that you have to see it as a voice because it's nice because you feel it's like it's you the voice is you that's it that's the only option you have but actually when you externalize it externalizing is a technique we'd use in family therapy it's a, where you remove the problem we'd say in family therapy the problem is the problem the child isn't the problem the problem is the problem and so you separate the child from the problem and that's very power that's a very empowering thing for a child because they come with you thinking that i'm stupid i'm lazy i'm this and that i'm bold I'm, and when you separate it out or i'm cheeky and you separate it out you show them that they're doing this behavior for a reason and so they've got power over the behavior and so they can stop it if they want to and so we the, the inner the, the inner critic that that voice that dyslexic voice it's like the anorexic voice it's in all these voices that we have in our heads that that dyslexic voice is something within our power and so when we realize that it's kind of separate from us and yet in, internally it's in there, we can actually hear it when it pops up. I hear it when it pops up and I'm like, okay, there you are. Okay. And, I, and, I, and it goes away then when I acknowledge it. If I, if I try to push it down or try to suppress it or repress it or whatever, it's, it, it becomes more pronounced. Mm. It's, it's like having a little bit of levity when you're kind of going, oh, there you are. I hear you. You know, don't yeah. do this. Who are you to do this? Yeah. Um, and like you're saying, Richard, exasperated in moments of stress or depending yeah. on the context of what you might be, Joe absolutely asked to do um yeah. and i think yeah like i suppose we try to reflect on that again i think learning in the, the conversation but dyslexia has been just one part and when mm. you can separate it and understand what dyslexia is for what it's not it it's it's an empowering tool um, yeah 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 it is very i mean that's what I, I think kids need to know as well that like you know the gift of dyslexia as well there's a gift to it as well and that's probably what gets missed in there you know that we, we we concentrate on like you know what it's the deficit of what it takes from us it takes from our ability to smell proficiently it takes it speaks to us negatively at times and you know it may make us read a particular way or maybe fall over words or you know i might find it difficult to read this in, in a, from a particular book or whatever it is and find it very straightforward to read from the overhead and so you know it, it kind of it does impact our lives and there are deficits to it but there's a lot of positives in there too and that's the real message that i think that children need to kind of get to and I suppose with my own daughter, she loves the Beatles. And I was saying to her, like, you know, John Lennon was dyslexic. And she's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I was like, well, how do you, how do you think he could write I'm, I am the walrus? Could, could, could you without, without bending language, without realizing that there are no rules to language? Language is something we've invented. And so dyslexia, perhaps it gives you some insights into like how you bend that and how you move it. And WB Yeats was dyslexic and, you know, Einstein was dyslexic. So all these great people who thought a particular way and kind of bent things, you know, that that's what dyslexia gives you too. It kind of shows you that there's in the, in the matrix kind of idea, there's no spoon really, you know, languages to be messed around with. And, and so, you know, perhaps the way it's set up and the way we teach it and the rules to it, we find difficult because we're dyslexic, but that gives us other insights into it. Like a painter throwing, like, you know, Jackson Pollock flinging paint at a canvas. Who the hell gave him that idea? <laughs> you know, that's only taking the rules and kind of going, well, there are no rules, really. And so if we get so caught up in the rules about it, but, you know, we make people feel, why can't I understand how you construct the sentence like this? You know, maybe maybe that's kind of something to think about when we're teaching our children that go for it, you know, and, and let yourself off there and think, think as you think. That's that whole celebrating neurodiversity. That's it. And then we've got, uh, we sometimes do a thought experiments on one of our teacher courses and say, if, you, if we ask the uh, teachers there to think about their favourite novel. Yeah. And then we ask them, you know, what's so good about it? And what's your, mm. your favourite character? Yeah. What is the, what's the bit that you go back to and reread? And why did, what emotions does it arouse in you? And all that stuff that um, is important with literature. And then we talk about 
what was the spelling like by yeah, James Winston? Exactly. How many pages did she write? Could she yeah. not have written a bit of a thicker book? Yeah. And all the stuff we kind of traditionally maybe celebrate about neat writing, perfect yeah. spelling, syntax, lots, pages and pages grammar, of writing. Yeah. yeah. And it made it made me think that, you know, you went to school in the 1980s, mm. Richard, and uh, I liked what you said about maybe we haven't come as far as we think we have. Mm. Do you think a young Richard Hogan in school in 2022 is better served? Is, is everything perfect in the garden? Oh, no, no, it's not perfect. What in the are your garden. thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a very good question, Don. It's a really good question because I see it and I see it with my own kid as well. And I think the minute we take kids out, you know, I think that's a, I, I, I do find that, find that difficult. The minute we separate and differentiate kids out into like, you know, you know, special needs or SNA or, you know, take them out for extra reading or extra learning. We're differentiating them from the, the, the main class. And we're saying that you're not in with the populace here. You know, you know, there's something wrong with you here that you have to go out for extra reading. I think we're more sensitive about how we do it for sure. But I think there's, there's other ways to do it. And I think, I, I, I don't think we're there yet. And I, and I, and I still, and I hear this all the time, Don, and it makes my, it, it, I have to, I have to watch myself because I'm in clinic, you know, and I'm, you're always listening to yourself as a psychotherapist. You're always listening to your reactions and yeah. what's coming up for you and what you're feeling. And I'd often hear parents say to me, you know, <clears throat> you know, the eldest child is quite bright, but you know, John is, you know, he's dyslexic. So, you know, they're, they're saying he's quite stupid. Right. And so it, it's very hard when you're sitting there and you're kind of going, right. Okay. We've got to, got to help the parents out of this narrative because it's very destructive for the child because the child is going to obviously feed, feel this. And so it's like we need more of a systemic approach to it. We need to help parents out of their linear and myopic views of it too because, and it's not their fault. You know, if I, if I probably never had psychotherapy and, you know, maybe I might look at my daughter and think, oh, yeah, she's probably, you know, and you, you start thinking that they're not bright and they're not clever, they can't attain like the others. And I hear it a lot. I mean, I'd hear this monthly in my clinic, you know, that, you know, he's bright, but she struggles because she's dyslexic. And, and it might be very well that she does struggle. But it, again, the idea might be that, you know, intellectually, they're not actually as proficient as the other child who doesn't have it. And that's where I think we need systemic training. And I think teachers are getting the training thanks, thanks to organizations like yourselves. But I still I still hear it in staff rooms. Mm. You know, I still hear the negative ideas around dyslexia. And then, and, and how it means, you know, not as good as really, you know, not, not as able as, and they, I certainly don't hear it talked about as like kind of like a gift or like, you know, there's talent in here and, you know, there's, I don't hear that. I hear the deficits of dyslexia for sure. And um, so I think it's, it's a lot better than when I was in school. Cause I think when I was in school, it was just generally thought of you're stupid. Mm-hmm. I think that's things you would have heard. And I was certainly heard you know, and teachers would said to me when I came into the classroom, like, you know, oh, you're Shane's brother. That's brilliant. I'm looking forward to seeing what you can do. So straight away, you're kind of going, oh, shite. Like, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I don't I don't know the teachers speak like that anymore. I think there's, the training is probably better. And I, I do a lot of work with, you know, teacher training and, and that kind of stuff around those ideas of how we label kids and mm-hmm. labels don't write, the, you know, don't, don't predict the future. They write them. So when we say to a kid, he's lazy or stupid or not as good as. For example, actually, as I said, this, I had a client in my um, clinic there recently said, said, tell me, he said he's dyslexic. And his teacher said to him, now, this is recent. He said, uh, when he was writing, he said, that's, he said, you know, he spelled something wrong, whatever. And he said, to the, te- the teacher came down and criticized him about it. And he said, well, I'm dyslexic, sir. And the teacher said to him, well, that's not dyslexia. That's just pure stupid. Oh. 
right? Kind of going, whoa. And, and, and the kid is like, you know, upset telling me this. And I'm, thinking, and I'm trying to help him unpack it. What does it mean, really? What does it speak about the competency of the person who said that? You know, you know is, that, is it about you or is it about competency here? And so you're trying to help them out of like understanding a negative comment because mm-hmm. when we find it difficult to, to instruct people, we often put the blame on them. And I think that's just a human thing, human nature. When we find it difficult to relate to a student, we lump it back onto them and say, well, he's just lazy. And then you go into the staff room and you say, Jesus, Richard Hogan is so fickle lazy. And then another teacher goes, yeah, he is really lazy. And then another teacher goes, yeah. And so they're all kind of like, there's a real sense of, ah, oh, that's nice. So that's not our responsibility to get Richard Hogan to work. He's just lazy. And yes. so, you know, that's what happens. And I think that's kind of like human nature, Don. And that's, we're going to take a while to get that out of the system. But, you know, I think we need a systemic approach where we talk to schools and we talk to teachers and training teachers and younger teachers coming through and also to families and parents and bring them into the school and have conversations around dyslexia and what it means and how to speak positively to your child, you know, who is with dyslexia. And I think that we're, we're getting better, but I would say we're not like, like Aaron wrote Aaron, we're, we're getting there, but we're not there yet. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Funny because you, in a way you're articulating something. I, I used to be a primary school teacher for a short period of time and I had a principal who said in a staff meeting once, he says, you've got to remember these children don't have learning difficulties. We have teaching difficulties. Ah, very good. And it shifted the emphasis. Yeah. And, and she said, who's paid to be here? And we said, well, we are, whereas the kids aren't. So it was a very powerful message to okay. say, this creates professional challenge. Yeah. Because we have to maybe shift what we do for most people and do things a bit differently to allow the potential of um, everyone in the classroom mm. to, to flourish, you know? That's, well, that's a beautiful phrase. That's, something that, that, I mean, that's obviously a, a very progressive uh, educational leader there mm. who sees that you know that, that we don't have a student learning difficulty we have a teaching difficulty and that's it and we do have a teaching difficulty i think she, she, was it a female did you, was it a female teacher was it or a male yeah it's a female principal yeah she hit the nail on the head there and i think that's what's quite, quite so hard for us and what causes us to label kids mm. is because it, it, the classroom is so diverse you know and it's and it is difficult to include you know everybody and everybody learns at different paces and and different speed and we have a particular way we want to teach it and you know and we have a rigid rigid little way of teaching say a poem or whatever and someone comes out differently we're kind of going no that's not it this yeah. you know and, and that's it we do have a, a teaching difficulty and that's what needs to and that's what needs to be taught on the teacher training courses mm-hmm. is that we need we need to kind of expand it if we meet a student that is challenging rather than label them think about how it's challenging our, our way of teaching them and what must we do to shift our you know our process here, you know, our practice here to include the child. And that's collective indifference because it's, it's so, it's so easier. It's so much easier to kind of go, well, no, you know, Don is just a difficult, Don's just weak and yeah. stick him down the back there and I'll do my own thing here. And I'll teach these guys over here who obviously are good and want to learn. And if there's some uh, bold behavior in the mix as well, mm. it's even oh, easier yeah. to kind of like, you know, which of course, yeah, they're, which of course they're definitely, they're, they're generally will. If you reject me, it's a yeah. psychological, I mean, if, you know, you can look at the neuroscience of rejection. That is the most profound rejection we can feel. At least when you reject someone and you're fighting with them, at least they're, in, you know, they're engaging with you and they're silent and they're subtle. It is an incredibly profound experience. And psychologically wise, we experience that rejection like we experience like hitting our hand with our hammer. So that hurts. Mm-hmm. The same part of the brain fires, right? As when we, when we hurt, hurt our hand, it fires when we were rejected. And that's why that really hurts. And so if someone's going to hurt you, what are you going to do? You're going to be disruptive. You're going to hurt them back. You're going, to, you're going to try to get some power back. You know, that's the only power you have is to disrupt the class or say something or make a joke and then the class laughs. Now you've got some leverage. Now you're the messer. Now at least that's better than being the quiet, ignored, stupid one, you know? And that's what happens. Yeah. And, and like, I think it's, it's so 
it's so powerful what you're saying and it like it comes obviously through your wealth of experience Richard because I think it, it informs like even when you you were referencing you know the the experience of say supporting somebody within your clinic who had that negative experience with the teacher mm. that there is such individual difference across Ireland there's some teachers that are above board you know Absolutely, really yeah. willing to learn and engage and and others that are you know playing catch up even in mm. the way we you know assess and understand dyslexia and that the kind of language around bright or you know so engaged or again not understanding maybe the reasons why a young person exactly. might be engaging I think it's just yeah it, it's giving a peace of mind when you do when you do have calls every day on a mm. phone from mm. those who aren't having the experience that's necessary in, in a mm. journey through education for a young Absolutely. person to feel included um but I'm wondering Richard in terms of your own work around inclusive education and you know having that experience say of of going across across the waters but like mm. in, in terms of what we can take from a more kind of I suppose from other jurisdictions or anything there around inclusive models of education that we can learn from or or our different spaces there yeah that's a good question Ethan. I, well it was so striking I've been working with DCU now in the education program there, you know, for many years now, for five or six years. And as I start, it's young trainee teachers, and I'm working with young trainee teachers around inclusion and the self, the self in the classroom for me is a huge thing. The self is huge, right? And um, the first thing I get them to do is right on the right, again, you know, to a page on the right hand side, write down all the negative labels you've received through your education, your education experience, and on the left hand side, write all the positive things you've experienced, right? And so I'm just going to getting to see you know how we experience how how have we experienced education in the system right and so the Irish students are always very enthusiastic about the negative stuff right and there's a huge line of like negative things and on the positive side there's a bit of a dearth of information I mean there's you know they're not so clear about well, yeah I mean that teacher said that and so there might be two positives but there might be about 10 or 11 or 12 really negative things and what really struck me when I went to America and I was working with the university in Seattle there this summer and I was talking with t- t- trainee teachers I asked them to do the same thing and their list of positives was just so full and their list of negatives was so it was like it was like just a flip of Ireland you know, I, I was actually taken back by it. You know, I was like, well, what the hell is going to go on here? I was waiting to hear all the negative things that they've heard. And actually, there wasn't that ne- many negative things at all. And so what really struck me, you know, is that the American education system and the way they, they go about inclus- inclusivity, I think, a lot better than what we do. And I think we're behind in it. Now, I think our education system is probably more, far, far more sophisticated in a lot of ways. But I think the inclusive part and how we speak about ourselves as teachers and how we think about people is we're probably behind, you know, and I think that's, you know, coming from a small little island that let's be honest, 30 years ago, we probably didn't have so much diversity going on in the country. When I grew up in Cork in the 80s, diversity was, you know, I remember loving Tin Lizzie as a kid and kind of like, you know, that was probably your big experience of, you know, someone of, you know, like Phil Linnett and it was like Cork was such a limited kind of place in a lot of ways say diversity wise and so as a country we, we haven't got much experience of diversity and we're coming from parents who probably had no experience of diversity and grandparents who probably had no experience of diversity and and, and so all of a sudden the country is you know um trying to merge out of that really kind of 
homogenous kind of existence. That's because that was what it was. And we've moved into this real diverse way of kind of being, which is super, but we, there's a lot of kind of residual stuff coming from that. And yeah. I think that's what's in, that's what's in the system still, you know, that we view people in such linear ways. We view people in such myopic ways. We're not really great at celebrating uniqueness. I don't think in diversity, like, you know, in Cork, you know, growing up in the teenage nineties, you could, you know, you get so many things said to you from my hair was whatever way, or you were wearing some type of clothes. Look at your man. Who does he think he is? <laughs> so we weren't, we're not, we're not generally very good at, 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 at that whole diversity thing. And I think that's a kind of residual thing in the system, but it's, it's getting there. And I think all those negative things that we've heard to the system, they're getting less, but then you hear that student sitting in front of me saying that I'm kind of going, how could the teacher say that and not have any self-reflection? How could you go home from that class and think, you know, that, that was a good day. Uh, that was a good day's class. How could you not reflect on what you said to someone? That's not dyslexia, that's stupidity. And not know that you fundamentally, you know, chipped at somebody's little self-confidence there and self-esteem. And, you know, and, and so we're not exactly, so we're, and I don't think those things really get said in the American system because they, they didn't pop out in that study there when I was doing in America. Those comments weren't there at all, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so they're a little bit more ahead of us in the whole neurodiversity and, the, and, and, and generally in diversity, I think. And do you have, if you've, you've quite a unique perspective, Richard, because you're obviously, as a professional, you work in this area, both as a teacher, now as a mm. psychotherapist, you're dyslexic yourself, you have dyslexic children. If pa- uh, parents of dyslexic children were listening to the podcast, in order to sort of address that imbalance that might be there about mm. negativity versus positivity, any sort of tips you would give individual yeah. parents or indeed um, adults themselves with the dyslexia to try to address that? Absolutely, Don. And I think it's such an important thing because, you know, the joint system of family and school are just such a powerful system. You know, kids spend more time in school than they do with their parents, you know, to form an education. And so it's just incredible that when they're, when they're aligned, they're really, and they're aligned positively because they can be aligned very negatively too, to scapegoat a child. But when they're aligned positively, they're, that's just an incredible thing to experience because then the child is supported. And my own experience, I noticed very early on that my child was dyslexic, you know, because I'd, I'd been through it myself and I saw her reading really brilliantly at three years of age she was just a phenomenal reader I saw what she was up to though I was like watching my, my wife was going to go god she's amazing and then I'd stop the page and go what's that word so she learned off the whole story to hide from the fact that she couldn't actually read it and so she was stumped when I did that right right so I knew then that there was an issue and I was saying to my wife you know she's she's dyslexic it's it's come down the generation there I was kind of worried that it would because it, it, I, I, there is a genetic component in there obviously it's coming down to the family and it's coming down and it lands just like lightning. It landed on me, not my other two brothers. And it just lands, lands, lands. And even the way I said it lands like lightning is a negative connotation. So there's a little bit of bias there myself still seeping through, you know, <laughs> and so, no matter what training you do, it's there. And so what I did with my own daughter is I took the stigma out of very early. And I made a joke about it. A, a humor was hugely significant for her because I just knew the voice. Now, I know she doesn't have the voice. As much as I can know, now, obviously, you know, maybe later on in her life, she might say, yeah, I found that really hard. But as much as I can know, currently, I don't think dyslexia is a, is a negative voice in her. Right. And so what I did early on is talk to her about it and talk to her about my experience with it and what I thought, what I felt about it and what, how, how it impacted my life. And, you know, and I, but I spoke about it, like not, not in a negative impact, about what I kind of spoke about in terms of like the gift it gave me. 
mm-hmm. and I spoke to her in terms about like you know music I love the guitar and I love you know singing and writing songs and all that kind of stuff so I t- spoke to her about that and that's the gift for me that's the gift of uh, of dyslexia you know being really kind of artistic in some ways and creative I love writing which is kind of like incongruent to what you think about dyslexia I, I actually find writing therapeutic you know I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment second book and you know I just I, I just enjoy those moments where I'm sitting down and I'm just writing at the laptop now if you ask me to write if you gave me a pen and paper and asked me to write a book, it would be a very different experience. But, you know, the laptop changed my mind, changed my whole experience. And so what I'd say to parents is destigmatize it, you know, and it was a joke in the family because Hannah would say, my, my middle daughter would say, you know, dad, how do you spell whatever it is? And Hannah would shut down. He's dyslexic. Don't ask him. <laughs> ask mom. Right. And so it, it was just like destigmat. It was just a joke. Yeah. We'd be laughing about it. And even when Hannah comes in now at like 11 with her maths homework, she's like, uh, dad, is mom here? <laughs> <laughs> Some <kicking. laughs> so is there a responsible adult who can handle this, you know? And uh, so it's a, it's a joke, you know? And so that, and that's crucially the, it's talked about crucially yeah. it's expressed and it's spoken about. And, and it's like, and, and I help her with her frustrations with her. Cause I can see it sometimes when she's like, ha! and she's trying to spell something. She's got her homework done. She's trying to do it quickly. She wants to go out with her friends. And the minute you're frustrated, like I was saying with Aoife, when you get like that frustration, you know, it increases that it jumps, it becomes more pronounced. And so it's about helping her to calm down. What are you trying to spell, trying to sound it out. And then also like, you know, realize that you have this thing. So it's going to, it's going to interrupt you, but it doesn't have to be like something that's going to disturb you. It can interrupt you without disturbing you. It disturbed me a little bit, but that teacher helped me out of it. And, uh, and I think it's like, that's, I think that's the crucial thing, Don, is that we speak about it, but that we destigmatize it. And we also promote the positives of it. Mm. And we tell them because we, we will disrupt you. I mean, it's going to disrupt you. There's no doubt about that. So there's no point saying it won't do that to you. It's going to disrupt you. But how you manage that disruption will mean you're resilient or not to it. Yeah. And I think it reflects on one of the initial points you said there today, Richard, about dyslexia being a voice and that collectively as families, as schools, you know, friends, society, we can all create and restructure that narrative and the mm. voice of dyslexia, you know, to be balanced, you know, not to, like you said, it can have a disruptive element, but actually we can look at the strengths based and we can, it's going to impact the way that a young person speaks to themselves yeah. and understands um, you know, dyslexia for what yeah. it is as well, Absolutely. which is so, so important. And it's a huge, when you think about any mental health condition, let's say, you know, when you look at any kind of facet of a young person's life, speaking about it, normalizing it, it just takes all the pressure out of it. It's when you believe that you're the only one with it. You know, you believe you're the only one who's bisexual or you believe you're the only one who's homosexual or you believe you're the only one who's pansexual and that like, you know, you're weird because of this and that this isn't normal and all the signs around society tells you, yes, you are weird because of this. And they're, they're the really destructive, you know, that's, the, that's when kind of like chaos ensues in someone's internal world. And it's so painful to, you know, to, for someone to, to live in a society that's restrictive. And so when we talk about dyslexia in the classroom and we speak about the gift and that's the first thing I always do because I work in a highly a highly motivated school like you know and they're really driven students and the classes are really academic but the first thing I always do is I start off and say because they're coming in a fifth year and I say to them I know some of you are dyslexic in the class right and I know some of you got really negative ideas about what that means or some of you think that you're not good at English but I'm saying hold that lightly as we go through this year and maybe maybe you might change how you speak to yourself and like, they come up to me at the end of the class and they're like oh thank you so much for saying that I've always believed I was this was this and you're just speaking you know you're just like normalizing it I know how you think to yourself because I thought that myself. And this is the way you need to start thinking about yourself because that once you do that, anything is possible. 
And it's, it's, it's really crucial that we start speaking about more about things. And there's nothing that's given me more joy in my own life, say, working clinically with students and, and working with teenagers in schools, is how open they are about things. I think this generation are phenomenal for that. And obviously it comes from parents, you know, from our, our generation, because we, we said, hang on, enough, and enough is enough of that really restrictive, destructive, negative stuff about, you know, reducing us down to simple labels and reducing us down to kind of like, you know, a simplistic view of human behavior and all that kind of stuff. And so they've, they're so much more open about themselves. And it's wonderful because the stigma is, gonna, is, is going. And so, so dyslexia, I think it needs to be spoken about more. And these kind of podcasts are really important for parents to hear. Because um, generally your child won't tell you, you know what, I speak to myself really negatively. You know, they, they might tell you later on in their lives, but they generally kind of hold it, especially boys, I think, hold it because they don't want to seem, as they see it, it's weakness. Obviously, we know as adults, it's strength to say, I feel crappier. I feel really bad about myself. But they hold on to it because they think that's a weakness. And, you know, it's, and it's a real error in their thinking and it brings an awful lot of suffering into their lives. Mm-hmm. It strikes me, Richard, that, and I don't know how many, we had probably about almost 20 episodes of the podcast done. And there's a lot of uh, guests that we've interviewed who end up, instead of avoiding reading and writing, kind of almost work with, mm. they write books. They uh, We've had school teachers who are spending their days talking about spelling and writing. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like that thing about running towards the thing that scares you. Yeah. And if you're doing it with self-awareness, with empathy, with humor, which I really love that idea that mm. you know, making it, externalizing it and having yeah, a laugh at it exactly not that it's not the belittling the imp- impact no. of it but it's using humor effectively is yeah. really quite striking i think that's great advice for for fans. and i use that in class a lot mm. you know and I, and I make a joke about my spelling a lot in class too i say here we go guys i'm going to spell this but who knows what this what this will turn out to be and they're all they're all <laughs> laughing you know and so if you're sitting there dyslexic in the classroom i can see some students who are dyslexic kind of nodding me going a nice one you know, and it's like, it's a bit of humor about it. So, you know, it's like this position of a fist, this is the way people are often like this. They're going around like this, you know, it's like unsustainable. Mm-hmm. If you close your fist and you squeeze it tight, this is often what I show a dyslexic child. That's what you're like when you're not celebrating who you are. Yeah. It's not sustainable. It's going to cause an awful lot of pain in your life. You should be like this with your hand open because you have nothing to hide here. You know, and we still, you know, let's be honest, if we were to analyze it, what is dyslexia? We probably haven't got a, you know, a really deep understanding of what it is because it's such, the brain is so complicated. And so it's like, you know, we're judging something that we don't really know. And so when we're looking at all the deficits of it, let's look at some of the positives too. And let's celebrate the uniqueness of who we are because, you know, we wouldn't have sailing to Byzantium or we wouldn't have like, you know, I am the walrus or we wouldn't have E equals MC squared. We wouldn't have all these great insights into society or generally poets or, you know, they're looking at things in a different way. They're tapping into something else because they have that gift. You know, and that's the way to look at it. And, and, and also have a bit of, like you're saying, Dan, a bit of humor about anything is really important. Mm-hmm. That we can laugh, you know, because we're absurd as a species, let's be honest. So we have to have, we have to, we have to have a, we are ridiculous. We have to have a bit of humor about it. The message I'd love to say to parents is, you know, um, your children generally often mightn't tell you you know what you say to them does to them you know and it's it's kind of like that michael foucault quote he says we generally know what what why we do things but we just don't know what we do does to people you know and so it's like it's like that a, a really positive adult can affect eternity with a child so if you have a child in your house that is dyslexic comparison is the thief of that child's joy 
you know, and so try to see them in their uniqueness and their complexity rather than things of deficiency and what they don't have in relation to the other child. And parents will often say to me in my clinic, I don't compare my kids, but, you know, <laughs> and kind of going, okay. And like, you know, that comparison will just steal a child's joy because then they become really highly sensitive comparisons themselves and they compare, they compare themselves for the rest of their lives. And I've just met it so many times, you know, doc, I had a doctor there who was retiring from his clinic and he was delighted to retire because he was t- tired of hi- hiding his dyslexia, writing prescriptions for 40 years. And he felt like he had never expressed it to anyone that he was dyslexic. He knew he was, but he, it was like a relief to him to, to, to leave work because he didn't have to write and hide this anymore. And that's that idea of like a life that's hidden is never going to be enjoyed because you feel like you're going to get found out somehow. There's some sort of tyranny out there going to find you out and destroy you. And so um, it's really important as parents that we that we accept the complexity and the diversity of our children because they're all so different and they come up in the same environment. And that's what's so truly fascinating has been being a parent, you know, and being interested in human behavior. You see the, the diversity of how they look at the world and their realities are three little realities sitting there looking at the world and they're all perceiving it differently. And it's, that's the gift of life that we all see things in a, in a certain way. So it's like allowing your child to kind of ex- experience life like that is a true gift. And we all find our way in the, you know, we all find our niche. We all find our little road to go into. And so there needs to be a little bit of, um, I think uh, a little bit of relaxing there around that because parents can be very tense about it when they think their child is dyslexic, that what are they going to do? What, 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 what job will they find? It's like, they're going to be fine. Mm. It's yeah. that reassurance, isn't it? I mm. think sometimes when they're, they're just thinking about the next step and yeah, worried about Friday's exactly. test or worried about mm. passing a junior cycle exam or something, you know, yeah. just that reassurance that, because I, I think that, di- that diversity you're talking about has been matched by diversity in the system. Mm. which we probably get at third level and in the world of work. Mm. Um, not sure we've got that cracked yet, especially in the assessment. In the no, no, so, I think you're right, Dan. Yeah, for sure, yeah. But hopefully things are improving there as well. So we yeah, see. I mean, these are all incremental slow changes. They don't happen dramatically. Yeah, travelling hopefully. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>